Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry sound bites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In this episode, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our September-October 2018 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Depression is a highly prevalent clinical condition, but many patients encounter barriers to -to face-to-face treatment. The use of technologies in the clinical care of depressive disorders may increase the reach of clinical services and support more comprehensive treatment. With funding from the U.S. Department of Defense, researchers at the RAND Corporation created an evidence map of the use of technology in the clinical care of depression. They searched the literature to identify published randomized controlled trials and then used predetermined criteria to narrow the analysis to 161 studies. Studies evaluating any type of treatment-related technology in the clinical care of depression were included. Of the 161 studies, the majority of which were published after 2012, the authors found the greatest amount of research for psychotherapy utilizing computers. Few studies involved video conferences, smartphones, provider feedback, or audio reminders. 90% of the studies reported that the intervention had a positive outcome of symptom improvement compared to baseline. The authors conclude that considerable evidence exists for the effectiveness of many technological treatments for depression, especially for therapy by computer. However, they note that more information is needed to fully evaluate the role of technology in clinical care. This article is freely available online. Please visit the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. The United States is experiencing a crisis of prescription opioid misuse. In a recent study from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration and the National Institute on Drug Abuse, researchers examined characteristics associated with prescription opioid use, misuse, and use disorders among U.S. adults. They also looked at correlates of the motivations for misuse. The researchers analyzed data from over 51,000 adults who participated in the 2015 National Survey on Drug Use and Health. Among U.S. adults in 2015, over one in three used prescription opioids. Among these individuals, 12.5% misused the medication and 2.1% had prescription opioid use disorders. These disorders were associated with young age, male sex, fair or poor health, suicidal ideation, as well as tobacco use, alcohol, cocaine, or heroin use disorders. Among the adult prescription opioid misusers, 63% reported that the main motivation for their most recent misuse was to relieve physical pain, followed by seeking to get high or to relax. For adults with prescription opioid use, reporting pain relief as a motivation for misuse was associated with suicidal ideation, cannabis and heroin use cocaine use, and other psychotropic misuse or use disorders. The authors recommend that clinicians assess prescription opioid misuse and its motivations and screen for co-occurring behavioral health conditions in their patients who misuse prescription opioids. 
Preliminary evidence indicates that nicotine may safely benefit mood symptoms and potentially cognitive symptoms in late-life depression. As depression in older adults is characterized by cognitive deficits and poor treatment response to antidepressants, there is a need for a novel therapeutic approach that benefits both mood and cognitive performance in this population. Along these lines, a study supported by the National Institutes of Health examined the use of transdermal nicotine for the treatment of late-life depression in non-smokers. In this open-label, outpatient trial of 15 depressed older adults, participants wore nicotine patches daily for 12 weeks, titrating as tolerated, to a maximum final dose of 21 milligram patches. The authors found a robust depression response rate of 86.7% and a remission rate of 53.3% with mood improvement seen as early as three weeks. They also found improved self-report of cognitive performance and trends for improvements in several cognitive domains, although no significant improvement was observed in the primary cognitive outcome. The authors conclude that transdermal nicotine may be a useful novel therapy, but definitive studies are needed to assure efficacy and both short-term and long-term safety before the clinical usage of patches for depression in routine clinical care. Multiple clinical factors impact the risk of suicide in depressed individuals. However, the prediction of suicide attempts is complicated by the fact that each individual risk factor explains only a small proportion of the overall risk. In their longitudinal, nationally representative study, the National Epidemiologic Survey on Alcohol and Related Conditions, the authors sought to build a comprehensive model of the three-year risk of suicide attempt in individuals with major depression. This model examined the simultaneous effect of a wide range of clinical factors previously identified as predictors of suicide attempts while taking into account the frequent association of these predictors. The model suggests that several domains are implicated in the risk of suicide attempt among individuals with a major depressive episode. Clinicians assessing patients with a major depressive episode should query about prior suicide attempts, recurrent thoughts of death, the number and severity of depressive symptoms, and comorbid axis 1 and 2 disorders to evaluate the risk for future attempts. The author's model showed that seeking treatment for depression had a strong protective effect against risk of suicide. The authors conclude that their model may inform future research on suicide risk and may help identify depressed individuals who are at high risk for suicide. Vagus nerve stimulation, or VNS treatment, has been found to be efficacious in treatment-resistant depression. In this study, supported by Levanova PLC, the authors examined the changes in quality of life associated with adjunctive VNS plus treatment as usual versus treatment as usual alone in patients with treatment-resistant depression over five years. Data were obtained from a multi-center registry of 599 patients with either unipolar or bipolar treatment-resistant depression who had failed at least four antidepressant trials. 328 patients received VNS plus treatment as usual, and 271 received treatment as usual alone. 
Assessments included the Quality of Life Enjoyment and Satisfaction Questionnaire, short form, the Montgomery Asberg Depression Rating Scale, and the Clinical Global Impressions Improvement Scale. The VNS Plus Treatment as Usual group demonstrated a significant comparative quality of life advantage over treatment as usual. This improvement was evident early and sustained throughout the study, a notable finding given the high risk of relapse associated with treatment-resistant depression. Importantly, the quality of life scale score improvements observed in the VNS plus treatment as usual group occurred at depression scale scores far below classically defined antidepressant response, a 50% decrease suggesting that meaningful improvements in quality of life were occurring despite less-than-complete antidepressant response. These results suggest that adjunctive VNS appears to improve quality of life beyond depressive symptom reduction alone. The authors conclude that for patients with treatment-resistant depression who are receiving adjunctive VNS, it is also important to assess the positive impacts on other aspects of quality of life functioning, including ability to fulfill roles, family and social relationships, and overall well-being. This article is freely available online. Please visit the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. Many women experience high levels of anxiety during pregnancy, and then face daunting decisions of whether and how to treat their anxiety. A crucial part of this decision-making process is an understanding of the consequences of anxiety for both mother and baby. Unfortunately, an accurate, up-to-date summary of these consequences is currently lacking. In this study, funded by the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, the authors combine results from studies comparing outcomes in mothers who were and were not anxious during pregnancy. Studies of women with diagnosed anxiety disorders were included, as well as studies of women with high levels of self-reported anxiety, and the researchers examined outcomes in both mothers and newborns. The authors found that risks for several negative outcomes were higher in women who experienced anxiety during pregnancy, including a higher risk of preterm or early delivery, and a higher risk of outcomes related to smaller babies, such as lower birth weight or smaller head, compared to women with little or no anxiety during pregnancy. Other outcomes, such as delivery by cesarean section, did not differ between women with and without anxiety during pregnancy. Overall, this summary can inform caregivers and patients when making decisions concerning anxiety treatments during pregnancy. Future studies are needed to show whether different anxiety treatments can lead to better health for mothers and their babies. Cigarette smoking is the leading preventable cause of death and disease in the United States. While its prevalence has decreased in the general U.S. population over time, it is not known whether it has similarly decreased among people with common mental health-related issues such as depression and substance use-related problems. In a study sponsored by the National Institutes of Health, Weinberger and colleagues examined changes in the prevalence of daily and non-daily cigarette smoking from 2005 to 2014 in a large sample of U.S. adults. They found that the prevalence of cigarette smoking in 2014 among those with common mental health and substance use problems was more than twice that of people without these problems. 
the prevalence of non-daily cigarette smoking increased from 2005 to 2014 for people with common mental health and substance use problems, especially for those who experience both. At the same time, the prevalence of non-daily cigarette smoking decreased over the same period for persons without common mental health and substance use issues. Daily cigarette smoking decreased from 2005 to 2014 among those with and without common mental health and substance use problems. These findings suggest that strategies to reduce smoking prevalence in the U.S. population may benefit from targeted tobacco control public health approaches that address common mental health and substance use problems in the community. While the diagnostic criteria for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or ADHD have evolved over the years, some children with impairing ADHD symptoms fail to meet full diagnostic criteria for the disorder. In this study, supported in part by the National Institutes of Health, the authors investigated whether children failing to meet the full criteria due to insufficient symptoms or a later age at onset in the clinical setting have levels of impairment similar to or different from those with the full diagnosis. Of nearly 2,000 children diagnosed with ADHD, 140 failed to meet all diagnostic criteria. These children were more likely to be female, to be older, to come from families of higher social class, to have less family conflict, and to have had fewer perinatal complications. They were also more similar than dissimilar to those who met full diagnostic criteria for ADHD in terms of co-occurring psychiatric disorders and school and social difficulties. The authors conclude that these findings, which suggest that clinically referred children failing to meet full threshold diagnostic criteria for ADHD, have patterns of clinical features and impairments that are highly similar to those with the full syndrome, are worthy of clinical and scientific attention. Cannabis use is increasingly visible as many states move towards legalization, and the potential impact of cannabis use on patients is an important issue for mental health providers to understand. An ASCP Corner article this month focuses on the prevalence of cannabis use and cannabis use disorders among individuals with psychiatric disorders, as well as user characteristics, the impact on psychiatric symptoms, and adverse effects on mental health treatment. This article is freely available online. Please visit the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. The rate of suicidal ideation in youths is around 20%. Suicide attempts have reached 9%, and completed suicide accounts for almost 10% of all deaths among adolescents and young adults around the world, making suicide the third leading single cause of death in this population. In fact, in several countries, the rate of suicide in children has gradually increased since the turn of our century. The decreasing age at onset of self-harm and the increasingly lethal methods used indicate the need for targeted interventions in key transition stages for young people. For these reasons, we've just released our newest curated collection, Unmasking Suicide in Youths. In his introduction, Dr. Philippe Corte, editor of JCP's Focus on Suicide special section, discusses the need for readers to learn more about the high risk of suicide among our young people. 
at nearly 200 pages and for only $75. This collection contains 16 articles from JCP and our Primary Care Companion Journal. To find the collection, please visit psychiatrist.com and enter the keyword suicide, or you can locate the collection on our journal home pages. Several medications, including antidepressants and an anticonvulsant, have consistently shown efficacy for post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD in meta-analyses of randomized controlled trials. However, no study has previously compared the effectiveness of these agents in routine clinical practice. In this month's CME offering, Shiner and colleagues use the treatment records of all patients treated in the Veterans Health Administration over more than a decade to compare treatment effectiveness and identify predictors of response. They determined that fluoxetine, peroxetine, sertraline, topiramate, and venlafaxine, which have been shown to be effective for PTSD in research studies, also appear to work in real-world clinical use. All five medications led to improvements in PTSD symptoms, and they were about equally effective. The authors also note that using any of these medications combined with evidence-based psychotherapy for PTSD led to the greatest benefit for patients. To read this article and take the CME post-test, please visit the September-October table of contents at psychiatrist.com. Modern medicine strives to personalize treatment and to find the right drug and dose for each individual patient. In psychopharmacology, therapeutic drug monitoring is available to assess if a patient has a drug concentration in his or her blood that is within the therapeutic reference range. Many factors influence blood drug concentrations, including prescribed dose, sex of the patient, drug-drug interactions, and smoking status. Whether a patient smokes is particularly relevant for the antidepressant duloxetine, which is a substrate for the cytochrome P450 enzyme CYP1A2, which is induced by smoking. In this cross-sectional study, the authors analyzed data on plasma duloxetine concentrations in smoking and non-smoking patients from a therapeutic monitoring database. The data show that smokers have more than 50% lower medium-dose-adjusted serum concentrations of duloxetine compared to non-smoking patients. Although smokers in this sample received higher doses, they showed significantly lower serum duloxetine concentrations because smoking induced CYP1A2 and enhanced the metabolism of duloxetine. Patients who stop smoking may experience significant side effects or even intoxication with duloxetine because the blood level rises after smoking cessation. This study underlines the impact of smoking on duloxetine metabolism. The authors conclude that therapeutic drug monitoring, when used as a tool of precision medicine, should personalize duloxetine treatment and psychiatrists should actively consider the smoking status of the patient. Antipsychotic medications are generally ineffective for negative symptoms, cognitive impairments, and symptoms of depression and anxiety. And yet, it is these symptoms that often limit a patient's return to normal functioning. 
of the various medications and compounds added to antipsychotic drugs for such symptoms, anti-inflammatory drugs have shown early promise. A recent controlled study evaluated the benefits and risks of a plant-based standardized extract called ashwagandha, derived from the medicinal plant withania somnifera for patients who continue to have symptoms despite ongoing antipsychotic treatment. Extracts of this plant have demonstrated anti-inflammatory and antioxidant properties. Stanley Medical Research Institute funded the study, and Natrion provided the central brand of the extract. In the study, patients received either 1,000 mg per day of withania somnifera or placebo for three months, added to their antipsychotic medications. Beginning at four weeks and continuing to the end of the three-month study, Patients receiving the extract made significant improvements in negative, general, and stress-related symptoms compared to those receiving placebo. Mild but transient side effects that were slightly more common with the herbal treatment included sleepiness, heartburn, and loose stools. Pending replication, this early study suggests that with somnifera extract could be a promising adjunctive treatment in schizophrenia for those who continue to experience symptoms despite antipsychotic treatment. This article is freely available online. Please visit the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. In the elderly, depression and white matter hyperintensities are common and associated with cognitive impairment. Recent systematic reviews have demonstrated that moderate cognitive deficits exist in executive function, memory, and attention in patients with depression. However, those studies focused only on the effects of depression on cognitive function and did not consider the role that white matter hyperintensities, known as WMH, may play in interacting with depression. In this study, supported by a grant from the Korean Health Technology R&D project, this possible interaction and its influence on cognition of the elderly was investigated. White matter hyperintensities in 122 community-dwelling elders with depression were evaluated at baseline. In the three-year follow-up study, baseline participants were reassessed using the same methodology. WMH severity was rated according to the modified Fuzika scale, and WMH volume was calculated using an automated method from FLARE MRI images. Results showed that WMH volume changes in patients with depression were associated with cognitive decline in the various domains, such as verbal fluency, immediate and short-term memory, and processing speed. Although the severity of WMH was mild, the volume changes were tightly linked with cognitive dysfunction across multiple domains. From these results, the authors conclude that depressive disorders and WMH are interactively associated with poor performance of multiple cognitive functions. Depressive disorders can therefore play a role as moderator in the influences of WMH on cognitive functions. In a new installment of his clinical and practical psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade considers the validity and the flaws of recent meta-analyses indicating that statins might hold promise for schizophrenia symptoms. 
In another column, he looks at the findings of four recent studies of pregabalant use during pregnancy and discusses whether this anti-epileptic drug is safe for prenatal use. The full text of these columns is freely available online. Please visit the September-October Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the September-October issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. You can view the table of contents on the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.